Thank you, Nell. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Romans 3. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to pick them up and we'll be praying for you this week. Romans chapter 3. One of the things that comforts me every time we meet is that the Lord Jesus Christ has pledged to be among His church. We were talking in our Connect group this morning of how He walks among His lampstand. And he has eyes like flames of fire, and he looks into our life with his penetrating gaze. And I just would pray that this morning as we meet together, that we would sense his presence and leave here changed. Charles Colson, in his book, The Body, Being Light and Darkness, um, made the statement that the truth about man is terrifying, which may, on the face of it seemed to be an overreaction. We get nervous when people speak in extremes like that. But he makes his point in this way. He tells the story of the capture of Adolf Eichmann by Israeli undercover agents in his South American hideout. Eichmann, after World War II, had made an exodus and was in hiding in South America. Israeli intelligence found him. Of course, Eichmann was one of the masterminds of the Holocaust. And the plan came together and Eichmann was captured and brought back to Israel to stand trial. In preparation for the trial, prosecutors um, called a number of former concentration camp uh, prisoners as witnesses. And one was a small weathered man named Yehiel Dinur who had miraculously escaped um, Auschwitz. On the day to testify, Denur entered the courtroom and stared at the man behind the bulletproof glass sitting in the booth. The man who had murdered Denur's friends personally executed a number of Jews and presided over the slaughter of millions Millions more. As the eyes of the two men met, victim and murderous tyrant, the courtroom fell silent, filled with the tension of the confrontation. But no one was prepared for what happened next. Yehiel Dinur began to shout and sob, collapsing to the floor. Was he overcome by hatred? Was he having a nervous breakdown? Was he horrified by memories that were uh, brought afresh to his mind? Was he intimidated by the evil incarnate of having Eichmann in the very room with him? No. As he would explain later in a 60 Minutes interview, it was because Eichmann was not the demonic personification of evil Dinur had expected. Rather, he was an ordinary man, just like anyone else. And in that one instance, Dinur came to the stunning realization that sin and evil are the human condition. I was afraid about myself, Denur said. I, I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. Denur's remarkable statements caused Mike Wallace to turn to the camera and ask the audience the most painful of all questions. How was it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was he a monster, a madman, or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? Yehiel Denur's shocking conclusion, Eichmann is in all of us. Maybe that offends you. 
But that's the point the Apostle Paul has been making since Genesis, or Revel, <laughs> what, right book, Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18, he's been making this case that whether you're Jew, Jewish, or Gentile, we're all under sin. And as we look at Romans chapter 3 and he unpacks the depravity of man, I want to urge you to wade in on this. For you to come into this conversation and and to say, this is my resume. This is truth about who I am as God sees me. Your mother or a relative or your children, they may view you in, in idealistic terms. This is how God views us without Jesus Christ. So how bad is the diagnosis? Verses 9 through 11 tell us. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul summarizes the condition of every human being apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be lost. This is what it means to be without hope in this world. So, he's been through several themes here. In chapter 1, he says, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he takes us on this sordid downward spiral as we see God giving humanity over to their sinful inclinations. And many commentators think that he's describing the Gentile world, and I, I align with that. And then in chapter 2, he, he moves from the Gentile to the Jew. And he says, you may be religious, But if you're trusting in your religiosity, you're self-righteous, and you're in the same boat as the Gentiles. And the danger is that you can become blinded by your religious self-righteousness and not see your need for Jesus Christ, who came to his own and his own received him not. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, he kind of takes a detour. I picture Paul, whenever he went into a city, he went to a synagogue first, He would present the gospel to the Jews. He would make the case that Jesus was the fulfillment of of prophecy. And he had debate after debate after debate. And I think chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 is really him taking on the objector to this claim. And he makes two statements I want to hold up together. Verse 1, is there Jewish advantage? In chapter 3 verse 1, Is there Jewish advantage? And then he continues by answering, by all means. God has given to you the word of God. He's given the law, the Torah. He's given you the promises, the tabernacle, the temple, the covenants. I think in our own application, is it it better to be raised with the Bible or without the Bible? It's God's grace either way. But to be raised, I would just say to the children and the youth in this room, if you have parents who have a Bible in the home and they read the Bible and they teach the Bible and they urge you to follow the the way of, of Jesus Christ, that is an incredible blessing. And so, by all means, there's an advantage. But then we look at verse 9. He says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. (laughs) So which is it? Are we better off or not at all? Well, it's both. 
And here's another example of how the Bible will hold things in tension that seem to be in contradiction, but they're making different points altogether. Yes, the Jews had the Word of God, but if you don't believe it, you're still lost in your sin. You can have a Bible on your coffee table, in your car, in your locker, or wherever, but if it's not in your heart, and you don't believe the gospel, you're still under sin. Notice how Paul makes the point, both Jews and Greeks, and Greeks was a first century way of saying, not a Jew. Everybody is under sin. Notice how he says that in verse 9. Jews and Greeks are under sin. That's an interesting way to say it, isn't it? Everybody is under sin. He could have said we're in sin. He could have said we've done sin. But here he he, he speaks of sin as being a taskmaster, us being in bondage to sin. So in this chapter, he's, he's giving us a summary of the human condition without Jesus Christ as God sees it. So I think one of the things that we need to accept when we come to the Bible is I can't use my human evaluations to give a true spiritual assessment of who I am. Otherwise, I'll think I'm the greatest person in the universe. And everybody will agree with me. (laughs) So Paul strings together here a number of Psalms in verses 10 through 18. Under consideration this morning, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, they, they say the same thing. But before we get into that, let's just back up for a minute and look at three common ways that humanity has been viewed uh, through history. Um, And the first would be, we're well. Are we well? This is a positive view for sure. We we really don't have a, a lot of major problems. All we need is a little more education, a little more self improvement, a psychological check every now and then, but man, we're we're not that bad off. We need to learn to balance and we need to learn how to care for ourselves better. But the human race is getting better and better and better. Look at how we've grown in technology. Advances in every form of science for crying out loud, we've sent a man to the moon and beyond. Look what we've done. We're basically, well, we just need a little improvement. This is the message of liberalism, who view Romans 3 as describing people long ago. But see, we're advancing. We're progressing. It it looks at the advances and says, you know, look at the progress. We have so much to be optimistic about. I read a meme on Joel Osteen, which is not a promotion of him. I would urge you never to listen to him. But it said um, in advertising one of his message, messages, um, nothing missing from Joel. That's the title, nothing missing. I can say with confidence that as he, he, the promo went on to say, you're on the verge of a breakthrough, a healing, a promotion. You're going to be able to say, nothing's missing in my life. As if all we have to live for are the things of this world. You're okay. You're, you're well. You just need to be tweaked a little bit. 
A second major view would be you're sick. It's a pessimistic view. Those who would say we're we're sick would say, "Wait, wait a minute, we need to take a step back. This first crowd is too optimistic on the condition of humanity. We can't look at the atrocities of human history and say we're well. Forget the panorama of human history. We can't even keep our own commitments, let alone God's commands. Man is not well. He's just sick. And this view, while pessimistic, believes there's hope. He's mortally ill, but as long as there is life on this planet, we can hope. Maybe he'll pull him up by, himself up by the bootstraps and press on to a Godward way of living. We're very sick, but we can address our issues one by one with problem solving and pressing on toward a better tomorrow. And so, are we well? Are we sick? Here would be a third, and I think it's the biblical position. Are we dead? And I think the, the Bible says, yes, we're dead. We're not merely sick. We're dead. This is the view presented in the Scripture from start to finish. As God assesses things and as He views us, we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, but which is hard for us to really receive because we're living and we're thinking and we have, um, uh, we, we're living our lives. Wait, what do you mean I'm dead? I'm not dead, I'm alive. And so, this can be hard for us to grasp, but this, again, is how God sees us, that apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, what that means is that we're unable to respond to God in faith or belief or any corpse, uh, just as any corpse would be um, unable to respond if someone came uh, to the casket and said, hey, get up, it's not happening. Or a trip to the cemetery and um, made a command to a grave. They're not coming forth because they're dead. So it is with us spiritually. Apart from God's supernatural work through the new birth and the regeneration of His grace, we would remain dead in our trespasses and sins. So I want you to pause right now. For those who this morning, in this gathering, you're born again by the Spirit. You're born again by the Spirit. And you remember what you were before Christ. And you remember what it meant to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so upon hearing the gospel, you had ears to hear. Eyes to see. You really did repent. And you really did believe. And from start to finish, it was God's grace working in you. So... We're not on life support. We're in the grave, friends, spiritually. Like Jesus when he, in John 11, when he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, he called him forth. Lazarus, Lazarus. And what happened? He came forth. He was dead, but then he became alive. And so it is with salvation. Nicodemus once asked Jesus, you know, how does this work, this new birth? How does this work? And Jesus said, it's like the wind that blows. God moving in this world. How does he move in this world? 
through the proclamation of his son. And we hear this good news and we say, you know, I used to think that was a boring message. I used to think that was for somebody else. But that's exactly what I need all, all my life. I've tried to please God by my works, by what I thought was right. And I came to see that I was under sin. And until I received his remedy for that, I was lost. So, as we are under sin, this is strong language. Paul could have said, again, we're in sin. Sin is in all of us. That would be true. But he says we're under sin in verse 9, which means that we're, he's presenting sin as a tyrant, as a cruel taskmaster. Sin is reigning in us and over us. Uh, we're enslaved to sin, and, and sin reigns in us apart from Jesus Christ. Sin exercises dominion, all of this in chapter 6, which we'll get to eventually. So our relationship to sin is an oppressive power, and we're in bondage to it. We're slaves to it. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The Greek word for dead means dead. sounds so hopeless you feeling the weight of that it seems so hopeless and that's the point and apart from God's grace that's us this is total depravity Total depravity. Every single human being is under sin, under its power, enslaved to its dominion, and therefore under its condemnation. Every single part of me, my mind, my will, my desires, are under sin's stain and corrupted by the ruin of sin. That sounds so harsh, Pastor. It sounds so negative. Why are you being so negative today? Because I'm really wanting you to see how incredible the gospel is. I think people, in large measure, are bored by the gospel, not because it's boring, but because they don't see their need for it in light of their depravity. The, this doctrine of total depravity, which is what Paul is talking and presenting, talking about and presenting here in chapter 3, is hard for humanity to receive. And that is because we tend to treat sin as a joke. A light matter. We freely acknowledge that we're not perfect, but coming to terms with our depravity, that's another matter. James Boyce wrote, we, We're willing to admit that we are not perfect, but not that we are not righteous. We're willing to admit that, we're, that there are things not known to us, but, we're not, uh, but not that we are devoid of all spiritual understanding. We are willing to admit that we wander off the true path at times, but not that we are not, not even on the right path. Instead of admitting that we're running from God, we pretend that we're seeking Him. It is vitally important that we come to terms with this bad tendency to run from the truth about ourselves. Without an accurate knowledge of our sin, we will never come to know the meaning of God's grace. Without an awareness of our pride, we will never appreciate God's greatness, nor will we come to God for the healing we so desperately need. 
How rare it is, isn't it? (laughs) To see a response like the tax collector in Luke 18, where Jesus said, the tax collector in comparison with the Pharisee, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Why is there such a pushback on this? I saw a meme this week on the internet, therefore it's true. Where someone was really irritated about this depravity stuff and said, child abuse is convincing an unprepared, underdeveloped mind that they're broken and need to be fixed, that they're lost and need to be found, that they're unworthy and need to be saved. They are sheep that need to be led. They are weak and need of another strength. They are, they are a, a label dictated by others that they, are, that they are righteous if they only have faith in Christ. It's a pushback. I, it's not hard really to understand. The bone in people's throat is it's an assault on our pride. Let's look secondly, the terrifying track record of humanity. Let's expand a bit and we'll come back. But, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, the Bible teaches that human beings are in a mess. And what the Bible presents is also represented in history. Uh, we, are, we are born rebels inheriting a corrupt nature from our parents and growing up in an environment tainted by sin. The Bible describes sin in many ways. It's missing the mark. It's taking the wrong path. It's disobeying God's law. And on and on it goes. It's a universal problem. Total depravity is not the best way to really express this doctrinal truth because it suggests that we are as bad as we could be. The image of God, however, is fall and fallen human beings has been horribly defaced by sin. We're in need of redemption from Adam and Eve onward. And so, in previous generations, sometimes depicts human nature as gloomy, pessimistic. But unless we understand this, we'll never understand the glories of the gospel. So how has sin impacted us? Well, first I would mention that sin destroys our relationship with God. In Genesis 2.17, God said to Adam and Eve, The day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And we didn't have to get far down the human story when we read in Genesis 6 that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the heart, or thoughts of his heart, heart was only evil continually. In Psalm 51, that great prayer where David confesses his sin with Bathsheba, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David knew that he had a sin nature that came to him just by being born into this world. Jeremiah the prophet, in two creative ways, he says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the the leopard his spots? Then also... Uh, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Nope. Can the leopard his spots? Nope. Neither can you do good. And then he says in chapter 17, verse 5, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? 
There ought to be a healthy distrust, believer. Even though we've been saved from the penalty of sin, we've been born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God dwells within us, we battle with the vestiges of it. And it would, it would do us well to embrace this thought. I need to have a healthy distrust of myself. Jesus said in, in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. All of this, Jesus said, comes from our heart. It's not what comes from without that defiles us. It's what's in our heart. Indeed, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So not only does it sever our relationship with God, in which we stand in need of redemption, we need a Savior, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. But sin, secondly, wreaks havoc on our relationship with others. This is an amazing thing to me. After Adam and Eve sin, they have two sons, Cain and Abel, first family, going to be a beautiful family tree, lots of happiness, lots of celebration. Not so. God had regard for Abel's offering, but he didn't have regard for Cain's offering. There's not a lot of elaboration on that. But Cain became very jealous of Abel. And God came to Cain and he said, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen, Cain? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Talk about a merciful warning. God himself to come to you and say, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is... Is to conquer you, but you must rule over it. Where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is in our heart, is every evil thing, James, said, James wrote in chapter 3, and how this works out in relationships. How it works out in relationships. Ken Sandy has produced a wealth of helpful material on pursuing reconciliation and he writes candidly civil litigation is one of the most brutal ways we can attack each other lawsuits often fail to complete justice litigation might resolve a problem it never achieves reconciliation so how does sin wreak havoc in our relationships how about our words how about our words Notice in chapter 3 back in Romans how Paul, making the case of our guilt, goes to, first he goes to our words. Nothing reveals the content of our heart like our words. And he gives some astonishing word pictures. He says in verse 13, their throat is an open grave, meaning whatever, what comes out of their mouth is death. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Of all the ways he could have described human depravity, isn't it interesting? He goes first to our words. 
Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt talk come from your mouth. That's a strong word. Let no stinking, putrefying word come out of your mouth, but only that which edifies. We need that instruction and the power of the gospel, Jesus Christ within us, to live this life. Oh Lord, make us willing to live this way, speak this way. Another way that Paul describes our fallen nature is, is through immorality. In chapter 1, he gives extensive treatment to that. Immorality, betrayal, brokenness, broken promises, the pain and regrets, the shame and the awkward dynamics brought to every relationship in life. From our neighborhoods to the nations, we hear regularly of blowouts in marriage. Just last night, talking with a pastor almost to the point of tears, as someone near and dear to him, uh, professing believers, getting a divorce. He says, I just can't think of anything more shattering than that. We treat it so lightly. I mean, it's just the air in which we breathe. Let me be clear, just divorce is not the unpardonable sin. We understand there are provisions given for divorce, but that, let's just set that aside and just hold up what God has said about it, that he hates it, and it is a sign of sin's work in this world. You don't need to be a certified therapist or a Harvard graduate to know the sorrow and anguish that comes with sexual sin. Some years ago, I was introduced to a woman who suffered the great sorrow of her husband leaving her for another And she gave me a copy of a book she wrote, kind of walking through the turmoil of that collection of poems. And one of her poems touched me deeply. It was entitled, The Anniversary. Today is significant as it marks the day when we said the vows, when we said we'd stay together forever until death do us part. But you left with her and you broke my heart. Or consider the truth of George MacDonald in his poem, Sweet Peril. Alas, how easily things go wrong. A sigh too much, a kiss too long. Then comes a mist and a weeping rain, and life is never the same again. It's never the same again. Oh yes, there's forgiveness. But friends, there's scars that come with sin. Could we not line up here at the front this morning And give testimony of how sin has scarred our life. It wreaks havoc on personal relationships. Thirdly, it brings distress to to our lives personally. We focus on Psalm 51 as David's great prayer of confession, but often we don't give as much time to Psalm 32, which is describing the same event. But here David talks about the physical anguish he went through when he was carrying this sin, he said in Psalm 32, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Silent about what? Silent about his sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you 
I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity and all of my sin. Praise be to God. And maybe that's you here this morning. The whole subject of sin has come to the forefront in your mind and thinking, and you feel the weight of it in your life. God's hand is heavy upon you. That's a mercy, my friend. That's a mercy to you. That you might experience the release that David experienced when he said, I caught a fever. I, I'm miserable. My guilt. And he confessed it to the Lord in a moment's notice. Or in a moment's time, God takes our sins. He buries them in the depths of the sea, never to be remembered against us again. Yes. Brings distress to our lives. And maybe you've tried everything under the sun to try to make it go away. Everything but coming to the cross. We would invite you. We would point you. We would, we would call you to look to Christ today. Who said to a woman in distress, go and sin no more. Sin leads to eternal ruin and condemnation. The end game on sin is that it leads you to hell itself. It leads to eternal ruin. There's a, there's a statement in Revelation 22, which is the last chapter in the Bible where we read, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. That's those who, who have received God's salvation, are the redeemed of God, who have been gathered to the place that God has prepared for us. And that they may enter the city by the gates. But then it says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. They don't get in. That should, that should send a ripple of fear over us today. Once again, two ways that God presents in his word. And for our remaining time, I want to transition thirdly. From God's perspective, how does he view us apart from Christ? And we come to the text specifically. There are none who are righteous. That's what it says in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not even one. And again, this comes, he's quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. He also has in mind, I'm sure, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. From God's point of view, human beings have no righteousness at all. Our problem at this point is that we think that we, we think of the good that we do and we think that somehow God will like us better because of what we call good. We assume that by simply accumulating human goodness, we can please God and we can't. Every time I share the gospel in personal conversation, I take whoever I'm talking with through the Ten Commandments. Through the Ten Commandments. 
No other gods, no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't be a liar, and don't covet what your neighbor has. And then I follow by saying, how well have you done at keeping those commandments? And then we think of how Jesus defines sin. It's not what necessarily from the outside, but what comes from our heart. And we think of our thought life, how it impacts our intellect and every part of who we are. There's none who are righteous. He goes on to say, there's none who understands. This has nothing to do with IQ. We know that's true. Because most with high, high IQs have no use for this message here this morning. This isn't about how many degrees you have, how smart you are, how educated you are. Human wisdom will not supply what you need to understand your sin and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul said, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, Spirit of God. So what hope do we have? Well, those who view the the truths of God as foolishness, they're not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. We need the Spirit's help to understand, uh, understand the message of Scripture, the understanding of the gospel. We need the Spirit of God to guide us. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has instructed or who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him we have the mind of Christ. And in him we have spiritual life. There are none who understand. No, not one. There are none who seek after God. Probably one of the most misplaced ministry philosophies to come down the evangelical pipeline, pipeline highway would be the seeker-sensitive service. Especially when you read this verse. There are none who seek after God. So why would you want to frame your ministry to people who aren't even seeking him? Why? Now, we don't want to be so inaccessible that we're unrelatable to other people. There's none who are seeking after him. Oh, no, not me. I'm, I, I go to church. That's not the same thing. You can hide behind the, the covering of, of a religion. Your religion, your involvement in, in this church could be something that keeps you from the grace of God if that's what you're trusting in. I mentioned when I'm sharing the gospel with people in personal conversation, I always mention the Ten Commandments and ask, how, how have you done in keeping these? And by the way, what's the entrance requirement to heaven? The entrance requirement to heaven is perfection, which poses a problem, doesn't it? Because we haven't broken them once or twice or half dozen times. We've broken them over and over and over again. But I also share this. I'm a pastor. I do religious work. Visit sick people in the hospital. Lead services. Do religious things. But that doesn't forgive me for one of my sins. Not one of them. And truth be known... At times it, it, condemn, it would condemn me if I'm trusting in it. 
We need Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, meaning that he absorbed God's wrath on the cross, the wrath that we rightly deserve. He absorbed in a once-for-all payment for our sins, and he rose again from the dead that we might have life in our living Redeemer. There are none who seek after him. No, not even one. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, religion can be a covering to our flight from God. I would also mention we're all under the bondage of sin. This picture of sin reveals that we are under this bondage. So that's why it's not real comforting to me when someone says, hey, we all got free will. And let me try to state what I believe about that. We do what we want to do when we want to do it. You got up this morning, you're in that that pew because you want to be here. We do what we want to do when we want to do it. The only problem is because of sin's pull on our life, we never do what God wants. We never do that which pleases him. Even even if we're sincere. You can be sincerely wrong. We have a, a will that's in bondage. Our heart is in bondage. So I close with this question, what hope can we find? There's a quiet place of rest for those who receive the message of Romans 3. There's a quiet place of rest if we're pried away from our self-righteousness and that we would know that Jesus Christ is moving in this world, that God is moving in this world. Jesus said to Nicodemus in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's been called the Hound of Heaven. So says Francis Thompson. He wrote in the words of, of, of many uh, critics, the greatest ode that has ever been put into print by an English author. This ode is called The Hound of Heaven. Uh, the Lord God is portrayed as the hound pursuing. Thompson writes, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him, still with unhurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy came on the following feet, and a voice above their beat, not shelters thee who will find shelter in me. The beautiful story of Francis Thompson is that it's not unique We have a hymn in our hymnal that says, I I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he's made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own, but I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed until that day. So how does this work of will and bondage and God pursuing like the hound of heaven well I think it happens in this way I think it happens 
as you begin to think in your own life and in your own heart, begin to do inventory of where you are with God and the things that trouble you, what you really believe. And what the gospel does is it, it lays us bare. And we begin to see that all the burdens, all the efforts to keep it together, all the self-help um, efforts are just fall to the side and I see that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. I want him. I believe on him. I follow him. It's a work of God and we must respond in faith to what Jesus Christ has done. So let me close with this bullet point application. What do I do with this sin? What do I do with my sin? First, I must confess it. God calls us to confess our sin, which means to agree with him about it. The Greek word is homologia, means to say the same thing as, I'm going to say the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. I'm not going to whitewash it. I'm going to follow David's example in Psalm 51 and his example in Psalm 32. The scripture says, I need to mourn over my sin. Psalm 38 For I confess my iniquity, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. I'm going to mourn over it. I'm I'm going to ask God to teach me to hate it and to put it off, to put it away. And that's what we're commanded in the New Testament, to put off our sin and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, I want to avoid even the appearance of it. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, abstain from every form of evil. How do I begin this process? This isn't a to-do list apart from the gospel. It's what we come to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer as we come to the close of this service? We enter into a time where we're called to respond in faith. And I always pray at this time of our service that God would give freedom to respond to him. Maybe in looking at this difficult text that's not, you know, complimentary. We, we didn't come here today to hear how good we are. But really an honest assessment of why we need Jesus Christ. And maybe the Lord has shown you that you're not trusting in him. We would point you to Christ. He's a, an awesome God and he's a wonderful redeemer And your problems are not too great for his grace. All who come to him, he will in no way cast out. Would you call out to him now? Maybe you are a believer and it's been good to go back to really look at how God views us apart from Christ. To fill our hearts with gratitude with worship, with wonder, with praise. Lord, I I thank you for the message this morning from Romans 3 that tells us that we're not righteous and we don't understand and we're not seeking after you. We're in trouble. We're, We're a mess without you. And I pray that the the message of this text would humble us and that we would yield to you and live for you for you're our only hope.
Thank you for sure and trustworthy promises. And now as we enter this time, would you lead us in Jesus' name? Amen.